Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. All right, guys, we're here today on a very hot southern day with Clayton Bats. Clayton, how you doing today? Pretty good. Just hit the road headed to lacrosse with Gottman for the final uh, MLF, MLF invitation of the year. And after this one's over, it's up at Gotten and deer season and duck season. There we go. We'll, we'll tell us as much as I'd love to jump straight to talking about deer season and duck season. Tell me some more about this tournament you're driving to up there. Yeah, it's the final event of the year up on the Mississippi River in La Crosse. You follow, I've been fishing 20, 25 foot deep. I'm rolling up here. I took all the lead stuff and put it in the house and in the truck and rolling up here to go get smallmouth and largemouth and two, three feet of water. A little bit different than what I've been doing, but looking forward to a little bit cooler weather up there. Yeah, I imagine it might be just a scooch cooler up in Wisconsin. Yes, sir. Yeah, I looked at the lows before I left, and I think the lows were like 58, and the high was like 85. Oh, goodness gracious, you're making me jealous. I think down here, uh, I, this morning I got done with my run, and by the time I got done running and ate breakfast, it was already like 92 or something here in Bayman at Alabama. It's ridiculous. It's been smoking, but, I mean, they've been biting. We've been catching them pretty good um, offshore. That's kind of the, I'll be fishing offshore till deer season comes in. Well, tell me, walk walk me through if you've been catching them deep. Walk walk me through how you've been doing that. In some of the schools right now, you'll pull up on them and you might catch, not catch, but one or two. But normally in a trip, I'll pull up on one and one a fire and you'll catch it pretty good, pretty quick. I mean, you'll catch for they fire for anywhere from five to ten minutes where you catch them every cast. In a six-hour trip, those five to ten minutes are really, really fun. And then the other ones, you'll catch one or two out of but it'll make for a good day and a six-hour trip. You'll catch, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20. And some of them might be two-pounders, and some of them might be six-pounders. You just never know what bite you might get out of that school. Right. Clayton, what have you been catching them, them fish on? As far as moving baits, like a Jinko CD20 and CD25, early in the morning, you can get that plug bite going like that. As the day gets on, you got to kind of get more finesse and something moving that you can actually throw that don't seem to pull the school off the ledge as bad is a Jinko trimmer head and trimmer shad. It's just a little more subtle than that big plug going through there. Then pretty much other than that, I'm dragging a worm, a jig, or something real slow through there. Two key bite windows right now are early in the morning, and then in the afternoon, they've kind of got acclimated. And when they're generating water and all that in the afternoon, so they're kind of waiting on that buffet to come to them where they don't have to work as hard throughout the middle of the day. Right. So key me in on this a little bit. Um, you've, you've been saying you've been fishing fairly deep. Um, I fish crankbaits a lot, but they're all shallow diving stuff. Like usually if I'm running a crankbait, you know, I'm fishing in five feet of water. What what kind of changes when you start getting into some of the deeper diving crankbaits? Is there a big, kind of a different strategy you have fishing those? you got to have the right equipment. That's the main thing. If you go out there and you're trying to throw a big plug on not the right rod or reel, 
it's going to wear you out and you're going to put it down really, really quick. Like with a five-footer, you can kind of get away with it, just like a normal medium-heavy bass from that to a glass cranking rod. But when it gets offshore and you're seeing like an ounce to two-ounce crankbait, you better have the right equipment or else it's just going to wear you out and you're going to get tired. I mean, it's 100 degrees outside and you're winding it all day. I mean, it'll wear you out really, really quick. So the right equipment, that's probably the biggest thing when you get in throwing those big baits. What's that look like for you? Are you looking and focusing mainly on the reel, mainly on the rod? Is it about the retrieval speed? Is it about the, the action of the rod? Yeah, I, I throw that big crankbait on an eight-foot rod and on five-speed reel. Um, you want something that's got a soft tip, but you, when you get in like the real deep divers, and I'm not talking about like a CD20, I'm going to like the 25 and like the big crankbait that get down there 25 feet. I throw them either on 12 or 15-pound fluorocarbon, a five-speed Shimano Corrado reel. My favorite rod, I got this the only Loomis I really throw, and there's a Loomis that's a deep crankbait rod. It's got a super long handle on it for launching those plugs where you can get them down there. That's the best rod that I found for throwing that big plug. I got you. Yeah, I, need, I want to do some more of that because I like fishing a crankbait. And I just, I've, I've done, like you said, I've sat there and gone out there, I guess, with my regular old rod that I got, just a little medium heavy seven footer. And I think I got like a six point something retrieval speed is what I usually throw. And uh, you're right, it'll wear you out with, with that big old bill moving through deep water. It turns into a, a chore after a little bit. So I may need to go and uh, I may need to make a purchase. Unfortunately, I've made several purchases since I started hosting this podcast. So <laughs> it happened. I mean, not only with like not wearing you out all day with that right rod and reel combo, you got to be able to land those fish too. And if you don't have the right one, once you get that bite, you're going to miss them and it's just going to make you even more mad, you know, because you've worked that hard. And most of the time, this time of year, when you get that bite on a big plug or, you know, that trimmer head, it's going to be a way better quality fish than what you normally catch on just dragging or anything like that but your bite you'll probably where you'd get 10 bites dragging you might get one to two on a plug unless you fire them and then if you fire them it's a whole different ball game and we can talk about that for hours right and for our listeners who who aren't up to speed on it what what do you mean by dragging just like a carolina rig a shaky head a drop shot something you could sit there and put let it soak in front of their face I can't tell you how many clients that I'll sit there and I'll be like, you got to go slower. And I'll tell them that, like my rule is, I'll tell them something three times and after three times, if they don't do it, then I've told them. And that's as many times as I'm going to tell them. But (laughs) then I've had people that do that and they'll still be going fast and they'll like reach down to grab a drink or get a sandwich out, take a swallow or anything like that. And they'll pick up on the rod and they'll be like, I got a bite. And then once they do that, I'm like, all right, did you see how slow you're moving that? Like, you reached down, got it, took a bite out of a sandwich, you picked it up, and you had a bite. That's how slow they want it. Hey, I cannot tell you how many times fishing any bait. I can't tell you how many times I've got hit while I was stopping to check a phone or adjust the trolling motor or, or pick out a backlash, whatever it be. Seems like, yeah, you're right. You stop it, slow it down, they'll hit it. I just try to tell them, and this is the analogy I always use when I'm on the water with them. I was like, ask everybody, especially when we're throwing like a shaky head or anything like that, I'll ask if they've seen a worm in their driveway, and about everybody's seen a worm in their driveway. Then I'll ask them if they've seen that worm jump that driveway, and they've, none of them have said yes yet. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. I don't, I don't reckon I've ever seen a worm jump nowhere. You're right. Everything, uh, 
you know, I, I can understand that it makes sense if you're bass, you know, just because you can move fast. I know I've watched a lot of bass move really fast, but just because you can, I, I can sprint. I just don't want to. So. All right, that worm, as slow as you can go with it, it just looks more natural to them down there. Yeah. The more natural you can get, especially when these fish have been pressured, when I mean, they've been out there a little while, they've got acclimated to that current, and they're waiting on it in the afternoon, and they kind of got their own little feeding windows. you got to kind of make them bite when they're not in one of those real strong feeding windows. Right, sure, I can definitely believe that. Tell tell me a little bit. I know uh, last time we talked, we got into a uh, a little discussion on on reading sonar and the importance of mapping. Walk walk me through some of that too, because I'd like to pick up on that conversation we were having last time. Yeah, I've actually been taking a bunch of people on electronics classes lately. Um, I mean, it's that time of year where you better be using utilizing them on Newfall or any you know ledge lake, offshore lake. Um, forward facing i've had a bunch of people with questions with that and having to set it up um how to read it after you um find them on side scan and down scan and even people that don't have it the hardest thing that i have with people once they i can show them how to find the fish is them lining up on the fish and actually casting to them a bunch of times they want to pull up there and they'll make like 10 casts to a wad of 30 fish and then you'll see them casting out the back of the boat somewhere else or they can't line up on them. They will be cast into the wrong area. And so we go through that a lot. I mean, sometimes I mean, people, they'll say they know what they're doing, and then I'll shut the boat off, and I'll tell them to line up on them, and they'll be casting 60 feet from where the fish are and not getting bit. And I'm like, I'll go up there and line us up on them, and their first cast, they'll catch one. They're like, what was I doing? I was like, you weren't casting to the fish. You got to be casting to them to get bit. It's like trying to like hit a stump shallow. If you're not hitting that stump shallow, then you're not going to get bit. Well, I'll ask this just because it was a conversation that come up in an editorial meeting here when we were working on a magazine. What are some problems that people run into when they're setting up sonar? Um, just as far as the actual, like getting one set up on your boat, do you have any? Do you install your sonar unit yourself? Do you let somebody else do it for you? Do you have any tips for people who got one and are, are mounting on their boat for the first time? I do it along with North Florida sonar. I'm good friends with them. I take my boat down there. We kind of go through everything. And they have a wire harness that they put in, and it is night and day difference when you put that in. And they have a system they do use for putting their own wire harness in, and I let them do that because they, they've done a million of them. I don't trust them. Uh, but if anybody's listening and your image is not real clear on your graph, most of the time I can adjust stuff to kind of clean it up. But Whenever I have somebody and they're like, I can't see on my graph and they look terrible, I'd say 95% of the time it's the install. Like the install, and they'll be like, Well, I had a reputable guy do it. And I'll look at it and I'm like, There's no way. I had one guy last week that he had a uh, marina put his in, and I got back there and looked at his three in one transducer and it was sideways. I was like, Well, there's your problem right there on your, your uh, down scan. Because I never could clear up the down scan where it was a good, crisp, clean bottom. I mean, I got it pretty close, but then he had already put in before I got there. And we took out, and I was looking at it, and I said, there's your problem. And it was sitting at I mean, too much of an angle where it wouldn't get in that crisp bottom. Yeah, for sure. I, I had an issue with mine here uh, back last duck season because I, I duck hunt out of my boat as well as fish. And uh I can let you guess what happens to a transducer when you start running them backwater creeks and doing a little bit of stump jumping. 
when you when you get done duck hunting and you go fishing that afternoon, that reading looks a little goofy. Yeah, and it I mean, when you're doing that, especially like when you're duck hunting and stuff, and you're jumping stuff, they will get a crack on them. They'll bend a little bit. I mean, you got that's you really got to pay attention to that. I took one guy where his was he he had installed it. It was installed upside down. You know, <laughs> there's all kind of little stuff that most people. I mean, some people will look at it and I mean they're like, well, duh. But then there's a lot of people that don't fish every week, but they want this stuff. So when they do go, it's more enjoyable, but they don't know all the ins and outs of it. And you just kind of like, just help them a little bit. And it makes their day more enjoyable. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, hey, that sounds like people like me. That sounds like something I do is put my transducer on upside down. I can, I can see myself doing that. Yeah. He just thought, I mean, and honestly, when I looked at it, the way it was thought upside down, like, I mean, it looked legit. But I mean, of course, it's like you look at it, you're like, no, it's upside down. But I mean, it looked like it would, it would work. Uh-huh. Well, well if, if people want to uh, learn a little bit more and, and make sure they know how to understand them shiny new electronics that they just bought, what's uh, you, you're doing a class here soon, aren't you? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm going to be doing a class. If everybody looks on my Facebook, uh, Lake Uvall Fishing Guy Clayton Bats, we about have the date nailed down to August 5th at the Go Fish Education Center in Perry, Georgia. I'll be posting all that on my Facebook. Uh, if anybody has any questions about it, they can ask me on Facebook or either call 334-310-8338. That's my cell number, and I'll answer that to answer any kind of questions about electronics or to book a trip or anything anybody needs. Absolutely. Well, guys, definitely, if y'all are looking for some more information, Clayton would be a good guy to get with. And uh, Clayton, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me on the show today. No problem. I appreciate y'all. Hey, yes, sir. You be safe on the road driving up there to Wisconsin. Watch all them cheese heads. I'm going to go there and give me some cheese curds right when I get there. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. All right, guys, let's take a quick break and hear from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Hayabusa. Hayabusa provides the world with outstanding fishing hooks. Hayabusa is manufactured in Japan with technical designs, functionality, durability, and styles that customers who want to catch more fish demand. Hayabusa Fishing works tirelessly to provide the highest quality products manufactured and ensures current and prospective customers achieve a higher level of performance by using innovative products. From sabikis and saltwater hooks and jigs to freshwater hooks. See what they're all about at HayabusaFishing.com. Also brought to you by Crocodile Bay. Costa Rica is not just a legendary fishing and vacation destination. At Crocodile Bay, it's much more than that. They deliver inshore and offshore fishing expeditions to meet the highest expectations. Adventures that other resorts wouldn't dare dream of and couldn't dare offer. With the largest fishing fleet in Costa Rica, they create custom angling packages for anglers of all experience levels and all fantasies. They run a fleet of meticulously maintained 24-foot Boston whalers and 33-foot strike tower boats, and they will customize a trip to meet and exceed your expectations. Check them out at crocodilebay.com to book your dream trip today. All right, guys, we are back, and today we are talking with Wade Blevins up in North Alabama. Wade, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Well, Wade, I know me and you, we've talked a couple times here in the past, and uh, I know you're a big fly fisherman. Stephen Rockarts, who was a guest on a, a podcast that we did last month on fly fishing, he gave me a number, said that you'd be a, a real good person to talk to about fly fishing here in Alabama. 
Uh, well, I'm I'm a little familiar with you, but tell our tell our audience if you don't mind, just kind of give us the one on one on on who you are and and where you fish and how you fish. I appreciate it. I, again, my name's Wade Blevins. I grown up here in North Alabama. I, I'm one of the few individuals that, as a kid, I was the guy that was taking a bass boat to school and uh, leaving school late in the afternoon, going out on the river. I, it kept me out of a lot of trouble. I spent more time out on the water than I did most other places. And my dad often told people if there was a dirt road or a road that led to water, I probably fished it. And uh, but like I said, it's um, it's kind of been in my blood from the very beginning. Spent a lot of time. My first job was at a tackle shop, counting hooks, putting them in packages and cleaning up the aisles and stuff like that. So I started out years ago at the Fisherman's Choice on South Parkway in Huntsville, Alabama. I uh, went from there to helping out at Madison County Lake as a kind of an assistant manager out there for several years. We drained the lake twice and restocked it multiple times before other companies shut it down and opened it back up. Um, opened a fly shop in 1995 through 97. North Alabama at the time was probably not the greatest place in the world to open a fly shop, um, but we sold a lot of dog beds, women's sweaters, uh, and some fly tying materials, fly rods things like that. We oftentimes spent a great deal of time getting people introduced to fly fishing with just making them aware that you could catch brim and bass and all kinds of other fish on a fly rod, not necessarily had to be trout. So uh, in Alabama, a lot of people would see you with a fly rod and think, oh man, I, you know, where are you fishing for trout? And I would often tell people I'd fish in, in the toilet if I thought there were fish in there. So um, a lot of my time was spent just trying to find fish in, in local areas, local ponds, lakes that were close to the house that, you know, gave me access. And a few private waters, too. Um, I was able to gain access to a lot of private creeks and ponds that have really been instrumental in helping me learn more about fishing over the years. It sounds like we're kind of in the same vein. So that's that's a lot of the stuff that I love to do. I've drug my kayak through a uh, a lot of weedy, brushy lots to get down to a creek <laughs> or a retention pond. And uh, I've I started fly fishing a little bit this year. And uh, I think it was only the second or third time I was out. I had a couple walk by and you could tell that they had come down here from up north. You know, they were transplants down here looking for the beach life because that's what the guy asked me. He said, what are you catching in there? He said, y'all got brook trout? <laughs> I said, no, sir, that's you were right. a long way away from a brook, brook trout down here. But <laughs> he said, oh, okay. So, but, uh, and that was my first job too. My my first real job uh, was working at a tackle shock and we, did, we didn't have to count the hooks. We'd, we'd progressed a little bit by the time I was doing it, but you still had to keep up with all the UPCs. And I, I tell you what, just the, uh, managing the UPCs in a tackle shop, man, you just, gosh, that's a lot of product that'll fit on a four foot section of shelf. I do. I do not miss inventory management in a tackle shop, but I miss, <laughs> I miss everything else about it. I just don't miss that part. I can attest to that. Years ago, we would have bins that had weren't plastic worms in them that were loose, and we'd have to go through them every once in a while and count them all just to see what how many were left. Man, every everything gets loose. Every everything <laughs> ends. Up, right. It don't matter if it comes in a pack. It don't matter if it's a crankbait, if it's hooks, if it's split shot. It all ends up loose on the floor at yeah. some point, and you end up rounding it up and trying to salvage what you can and. Yeah, just people we used to have on every aisle. We tried it for a little while and it didn't work. People wouldn't do it, but we were like a library. We had a little box and it said, look, if you take it off the shelf, 
please don't put it back. Mm -hmm. Just put it in the box. That's right. It ain't going to go back in the right spot. I know you're not going to put it back in the right spot. <laughs> and then I'm going to be sitting here. My system's going to show that I got four or something. I'm not going to be able to find it. So <laughs> even, even with all the technology that we had when we were doing it, man, like, I don't know. Short of sticking RFID tag on every pack of hooks in your store, I don't know how you can keep everything organized. So it's just a constant, you know, checks and balances going back and inventorying twice a year and trying to make sure you had what you needed for the next season. You know, so blowout sales and and just trying to keep the pegs full for those guys that were looking for particular colors or particular baits. You know, we went through a lot of crankbaits and worms and various colors that people were always looking for so that's it and and specifically that color they want the sexy shad not the tennessee shad not the natural shad <laughs> they got to have the sexy shad <laughs> uh it was bluegill mardi gras and june bug <laughs> yeah june, june bug's still a real good good seller we sold a lot of june bug and then uh with those zoom boats but the zoom baits we would sell june bug and then uh, watermelon's always popular, black, white, oh, yeah. you know, the bubble gum. You got your four or five really strong performers, and then you got the rest that's just there to kind of flesh out the aisle. So you're going to – we were big enough stores, a lot of that stuff at the end of the season. If it hadn't sold, we'd send it back to them. <laughs> that was in our contract. But uh, Yeah, I know you and I talked a little bit about kind of a passion that we both have about sunfish. And so panfish to me – uh, that's one of my favorite species. My dad would say pound for pound, they're the hardest fighting fish there is because they always run at 90 degrees unless you catch a, a goggle eye or what we call a greenie because they hit like crazy and then just give up. But, um, you know, for, for me, shell cracker, red breast, long ear, uh, just traditional bluegill, that's that's what I love to do. And so I'll spend a lot of time wading creeks. Uh, Used to with a spinning rod. Nowadays, it's pretty much always with a fly rod. I grew up fishing a fly rod early on um, when I was just a little boy. My dad actually uh, bartered a trade for one, and we fished popping bugs and wet flies for brim and bass and all the local creeks and a few, a few private areas. But that's my passion, and that's what I really enjoy. And this time of year is probably one of the best for getting out. You know, it's, as it's getting hotter. Some of them get a little more sluggish, and you got to find the, the shade or cool water, uh, deeper pockets, things like that, to really pick those bigger fish off. But if you're sly enough, you can sneak up on them, and you know they're always going to come up and investigate something on top, uh, especially when the hoppers are out and all kinds of insects fall on the ground, bees and ants and everything else. They're going to come and at least inspect it. So that's. That's what I love to do is get out and go find those fish, and many times you'll catch bass in between them too. So, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes you catch the boogie and then you catch the bass. I had that on a on a fly <laughs> rod not too long ago. I, I caught a little uh, long-eared sunfish, yep. and I, and I seen them coming. I was sight fishing. There was a little group of them. Had some beds at the edge of some some grass in a creek earlier this spring. I caught that little sunfish and he started fighting. And when he started struggling, I seen on the other side of the creek, I seen him come out the grass. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, this is mm -hmm. going to be something else. And uh, That'll get your heart pumping. Oh, yeah. He he got him, but I didn't have no way that little bitty fly hook. You know, I didn't have no way to set the hook. So he'd grab him and I'd pull him loose and he'd grab him again. And he he finally just give up. He said, I don't know what's up with that fish, but I'm going <laughs> to go find another one. <laughs> What's what's your favorite flies getting up there in them creeks and, and doing like you said, mostly bluegill, but catching a few bass. What's what's your favorite kind of warm water 
uh, fly to throw down here in Alabama? Well, I, I have, I'm a little bit partial. My dad created a bug years ago called the Sam's One Bug. Actually started out as just the one bug, and then as he got real sick and, and passed away, uh, we kind of renamed it as the Sam's One Bug. And a friend of mine actually put it out on a forum a while back, and he got published in 2002 in the Fly Fishing and Tying uh, journal and um, so it with one of his other flies but it's just a little foam popper uh, back in the day we had several people that tied these beautiful balsa poppers that were hand painted and uh, but they were really expensive even in the early 80s they, you know they were four and five dollars a piece and um, you'd get them out my dad's eyesight wasn't very good his his distance he had a hard time seeing uh, his distance and uh, we'd get out on the water and he'd cast too far and hit it up against the seawall or the rocks and that thing had come back chipped or cracked and sometimes it'd just be a hook with feathers on it and a few rubber legs and no more cork. And so he'd get really frustrated that his prize poppers were getting destroyed every time they hit the rocks or a boat motor or whatever the case may have been. And um we had been at a show at Joe Wheeler State Park and a gentleman brought over some foam cylinders from an old rod handle and thought that they would turn out to be a good body for a popper, but he just couldn't figure out how to get them on a hook. And through some trial and error, my dad ended up coming up with this little bug that has a little X pattern for legs and has a head that's actually sectioned off with thread that makes it look kind of like a grasshopper body. You have a uh, extended long body that has kind of a pointed tail on one end and you got the head on the other end with two legs running through the foam on about a size six to uh, anywhere from a four to six hook, pretty much standard on them. And they float real good on the surface. They sit right in the surface film of the water. And um, they're lightweight. They're easy to cast. They'll bounce off the rocks. They come in all kinds of colors. So it's easy to tie. It doesn't take a lot of time. His thing was, he said, I I don't want to take any more time tying a fly than it takes to lose one. Because uh, he'd get them caught in the trees or, uh, you know, on a rock or a bank or snag them or something. And, and he said, you know, I just I want something I can just fish with and catch fish. Well, we'd gone out and uh, he was testing them out there on the bluffs on Joe Wheeler. and Ended up catching just a ton of, of all kinds of bluegill sunfish, three or four smallmouth, a couple of them that were three to four pounds a piece, a couple of largemouth, a few striped bass. And he said, man, I only need one bug to fish all day. So that was that's how it got its name. And um, since then, we've had people send letters and uh, just all kinds of different things back with bugs that needed repair or bugs that had caught a lot of different fish. I've got one sitting in a frame up here that we know caught over 200 fish in one day. And it's it looks like Velcro. The foam's just been so chewed up. And, you know, they're durable. You know, if you expect most flies, you know, if you get 10 to 15 fish on a, on a single fly, you accomplish something but to be able to catch 50 to 100 fish then on a bug you know it's done its due diligence and that was our goal is to make something that's durable that's fun that's easy to use it'll cast well Um, and so that's my favorite fly that's probably what i've caught more warm water fish on than any other fly i've ever fished and i fish a lot of other flies too but um, that's my go-to, and I really like it in a yellow with a contrasting leg color, um, like an or- bright orange or a black or something like that that really sets them off. A lot of people like yellow on yellow or 
a brown body with yellow legs, things like that. But you can you can tie them in all different colors. There's even a sky blue pattern that works real well this time of year in the summer. And any kind of dragonfly pattern, you know, that looks like that as well. Those colors from a bright green to kind of a reddish rust orange. And I've caught some really big fish on them. I, you know, fish a small stream that has some really nice small mouth in it. And over the years, I've, I've been able to be very fortunate to catch some some really nice fish on, on a fly rod. So that's that's my go-to bug. It's, I'm looking at it on the screen right now. I've got it pulled up, and it, and it is, like you said, it's a very simple-looking fly, and it, it strikes a nice balance to me looking at it. Like, you have some flies that are, you know, realistic, and and then you have some that are, are it's almost like has the cat toy effect, right? It's got, like, lots of little mm-hmm. fluffs and bits and dangles, and it, it just seems like it's made to just kind of tease a fish, and it, it does, looking at it, it has a really good, like you said, it's got a good cricket profile. The, it has a clearly defined head, and the body tapers in the rear, uh, but then it's got that marabou, and it's got those big, big, long, gangly legs on it, and it, it looks like a fish-catching machine. I've never fished one, but I've... Uh, it it looks like it would catch fish and and you're right i've had i can't tell you how many times i have broke the bill on a crankbait or or tore up one of the the poppers you were talking about that's made out of balsa wood or cork or whatever it may be and you you get that paint scuffed up and even if you just scuff the paint you're like man i won't i won't name names but some of the flies that you buy um kind of hurts once you start scuffing them you kind of feel kind of feel bad about it Exactly. And yeah, well, we'll have to fix that. I'll have to get you some to, to test out on your own. You can give your own account of how well you think they work. We uh, we fish a lot of mayfly hatches when, when possible. And it always amazed me, you could go up to a tree and hit it with a, a paddle or a pole or, you know, spray them with a squirt gun. And you'd have hundreds or maybe even thousands of flies come off the tree and land on the water. And fish had come from all over, you know, you'd see brim come in first and start busting them, maybe some triper or something come in, a few catfish. But then after a while, these big dark missiles, I, you know, I call them submarines, come cruising in underneath them. And you'd have a hundred flies laying out there, you know, that are live flies on the surface of the water. And you'd throw that one bug out there and, it, and out of all of those bugs, they'll come up and inspect that popper before anything else. And it, it just blows my mind. They got all that fresh food there, but they're going to come check that popper out. Now, so I don't know what it is about it. I don't know if it's the legs on it, the color pattern, or just something different on the water. But it, it never ceased to amaze me the number of fish we caught in a mayfly hatch when you know when they've got all that food, but they're going to come to that popper almost every time. It's it's amazing. It's it's a definitely an interesting looking thing. Give me a what what are your thoughts? So fishing a topwater bug like that, how do you usually fish it? Do you cast it out and let it sit? Like I've heard some people say, just cast them, let them sit and drift. That's what you do. Just let it let it plop. Depends and, on the water. It's so, and Stephen fishes them a little different than I do. You know, I know you mentioned Stephen Rock Arts earlier, but most of the areas he's fishing are fast moving water or with a lot of current. So there, that takes a little different technique than ponds or lakes. Uh, my dad would always say, you know, cast it out there, count to 10, let it sit. And then when you think you need to move it, count to 10 again. And um, so he, he would he would say it was a matter of patience between you and the fish. 
and oftentimes I'd be looking away or getting a soda or something out of the cooler, and that's usually when I'd have the biggest fish come up and sip it off the surface when I wasn't paying attention. But I, I'm kind of that way. I'll cast it out, let it sit. Uh, a lot of times my patience isn't long enough to let it sit there for 20 seconds, but um, <laughs> I'll start twitching it back if it's, you know, if it's not getting attention or it doesn't get a strike. And some of the bodies of water I fish, I've had instances, especially late summer, early fall, where you can cast that thing out and you'll see a V or a wake come from 15, 20 feet away before that fly ever hits the surface of the water. And there's every once in a while you'll have a fish will come completely out of the water after it and hit it before it ever hits the water. And days like that are unforgettable. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. But on moving water, a lot of people will cast it up tight to the bank, make it look like something that either fell off the rocks or fell off the bank or a tree limb or something like that and move it quickly, almost instantly to, to get the attention of fish. Cause if the water's moving, it's going to get out of that strike zone pretty quickly. So you want to make sure that if you're, if you make a good cast into that area where a fish should be, you get their attention pretty quickly and different seasons that'll change in the, you know, cooler months, they might be a little slower. They don't want to, chase something as quickly uh early spring they want it really moving quick and they're chasing bait down so it it just you kind of have to look at the water and see what's going on and get an idea and, and i've always said if you know if one action's not getting attention change it up you know move to something change your pace maybe a couple twitches and let it sit a couple twitches and let it sit make it look like something that's either injured or moving in the water. And, you know, if you're getting a follow and it's not producing, slow it down. Or if you're getting a lot of follows and then as soon as the bug stops and they just turn away from it, then just keep stripping it all the way back to the boat as quick as you can. A lot of times that'll entice some of the most aggressive strikes. So just change it up, figure out what works. You know, confidence is key, right? A lot of times it's between the years. And if you've got confidence in a bait, that'll do more for you than anything else. Uh, I recall a tournament years ago where a guy came in and all of his tackle had been stolen the night before, a tackle box and a couple rods. And somebody was kind enough to give him a a spare rod, but he went into a local shop there and he picked up about six packs of man's red paddle tail worms. And, um, went out with those strawberry worms and he placed second in the tournament and he later they asked him well what do you think was it that you know caused you to play second he said well it was confidence i grew up fishing those worms i knew they'd catch fish i just had to have right in, in the right place That's uh, it. you know it there's a lot about what you're what you believe in and i gotta say i believe in this bait so there's a lot of other guys i think i've i've kind of put that on them too where they they fished it long enough now, they believe in it as well. So There we go. It definitely looks like an interesting bug. And um I know you talked you don't you don't sell them, but there's there's several resources I've seen um where folks if they want to tie their own fly, they can go tie it. Do you have a a, a place that you usually send people to if they want to learn how to tie that pattern? Absolutely. So you can actually go to a couple different things. You can either go to my Instagram account at Sam's One Bug, or you can go to YouTube and search Sam's One Bug. I have a, a YouTube page there that has several different tying videos, or you can email me at samsonebug at gmail.com. 
and I'll send you tying instructions and the article and a little more about the story that I have as far as what, what I'm doing. Absolutely. And guys, if y'all listening in, if y'all want to get into to tying flies, I'll just add, um, I held off on doing it for a long time because it looks like it's, it looks harder than it really is. I finally had a guy give me a jig. You can tie something like the one bug. You can figure it out. If you can tie your shoes, you can tie a fly and, and bluegill especially. Uh, they're pretty forgiving. I have found if, if your thread ends is a little loose or if you got something a little crooked and it's, uh, once you start catching fish on flies that you've tied yourself, it's it's really hard to stop. It's really fun. And then I'll <laughs> say, too, a lot of people, when I started fly fishing, I had it in my head that fly fishing was a, a kind of a harder, more challenging way to catch fish. And it can be. But what I've found, especially with pan fish, it's really a benefit to have a fly. If you're used to baiting hooks, it's very convenient to have one good, solid fly that you can catch. 20 30 fish on in an afternoon and and if they hit it and miss it you can pop it right back out there again and you will actually it surprised me but once you get dialed in you'll catch just as many or more fish with a fly and a fly rod as you will on ultralight spinning tackle or cane pole or whatever you used to bluegill fishing with so y'all definitely be sure if anybody's interested into fly fish and in fly fishing uh, the one bug is an awesome way to dip your toe into that and get started. If you've fished topwater baits before, um, you kind of already know how to fish it. It's very similar. So That reminds me, I, I, I used to tie a lot of deer hair bugs. We would bend deer hair or stack deer hair and then shave it with a razor blade to make it whatever kind of profile you wanted. And uh, there's a gentleman north of me. Brandon Bales, it's probably one of the, if not the best deer hair tire in, in the nation right now. And that that style of fishing with a fly rod, years ago I was fishing a tournament, just a local club tournament. And um, one of the things that I loved was frog fishing the matted grass in Gunnersville. And so we would go out and, and fish these plastic rats and frogs all the time. And I got to thinking, you know, I could, like you just said, I could throw a hair bug out into those pockets into the water and stir up a bass quickly. Um, and if he blew up on it and missed it, I could put it right back in that same hole in just a matter of seconds without having to reel all the way in or throw a bug back out there. And we had fished a tournament, gosh, it was probably 19, uh, probably I think 1987, uh, late 87, maybe early 88. And um, I was fishing that fly rod and did really well would have won the tournament uh, we had a really nice stringer had a little over 27 pounds on a five fish stringer and um <laughs> got disqualified because my rod length was too long and i was fishing an eight weight fly rod at the time and didn't know anything really about rules of terminal tackle um but later you know sage actually came out with a fly rod that was designed for bass fishing tournaments and very few people use them you don't hardly ever see that at all but there's advantages to it at certain times of the year um but again it you know it was one of those things that i didn't know i had no idea I learned a hard lesson that day but uh you know back then you couldn't use a, a rod over nine feet long you actually it couldn't even be over a certain eight foot eight foot length i believe a little over eight feet long so anyhow it's uh that's part of growing up and learning 
I'm always trying to find a, a different way to catch a fish. You know, it's uh, it's that learning process. If you, if you quit learning, then you know you really you become stagnant. And you know, I'm always learning new stuff, and I think that's what I love about the sport in general. Whether it's spin fishing, bait cast, or fly rod, it doesn't really matter. I just I love catching fish. I think most of the guys that listen to this podcast and are out doing it every day, that's that's the same same way they are. They just enjoy it and. Man, what a beautiful resource we have here in the state of Alabama. Pretty incredible. Absolutely. We've got a lot of a lot of opportunities all the way from, you know, down here on the bay and out in the Gulf, saltwater, all the way up to the little creeks up north Alabama. I, I I think I agree with you. Like my favorite part of fishing is there's always something new to go figure out. And uh I definitely yeah. appreciate you volunteering a little time today to come on and uh help help kind of spread the word about the one bug and hopefully, you know, maybe recruit a few more people in to uh try fly fishing. I think it's uh I've had a lot of fun getting into it this year and it definitely it will uh all the guys listening in, give it a shot. It'll make you a better fisherman. It it, it just it just will. So um even even if you don't don't stick with it and do it exclusively uh just learning that new skill you will it will translate into whatever your preferred type of fishing is so that's awesome thank you for allowing me to be a part of your show absolutely wade i appreciate you being on with me thank you yes sir all right guys that wraps up another great segment y'all take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you this episode has been brought to you by hilton's real-time navigator The days of heading out and blindly looking for good fishing areas are pretty much over. Don't waste time and money on fuel searching for fish. You need the recent highest resolution images to not only know where to go, but where not to go. The knowledge provided by today's technology is critical when planning an offshore fishing trip. Make the choice that professional captains all over the Gulf make and choose Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The easy-to-use interface and excellent customer service will have you on the fish every time you go. Check it out at hiltonsoffshore.com. All right, guys, today's guest is going to be Jacob Mott. Um, Jacob has been fishing tournaments here for the past four or five years, and he's been tearing them up pretty good, especially this last tournament that he was in. I saw some pictures on social media uh, that made it immediately apparent that I had to give this man a call and figure out what he was doing to catch all these big old fish. So, uh, Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. No, we were we was happy to uh to find you. So so tell me tell me a little bit about yourself. Kind of kind of give our listeners the 101. I know you've been fishing for a few years. Where do you usually fish at? Well, I'm from Selma, Alabama. I grew up down there fishing on the Alabama River. I moved to the Birmingham area probably seven or eight years ago, and I had to pick up a kayak to fish the Cahaba River. So I did that for a little while, and I started hearing about kayak tournaments, and that just sounded awesome to me. So I've been fishing kayak tournaments since about 2019, and I, I, it's been it's been great. I, I don't know. I, I enjoy every bit of it. The, the exploration, getting to see things that no one else gets to see that's not willing to put in that kind of work. You can launch that kayak anywhere you want to, as long as you have water and you're not trespassing, obviously. Uh, you can fish wherever you want to fish. Absolutely. We, we, we was talking a while back with Wayne Harris out there on the Coosa Talabusa Systems, and uh he was saying the same thing. You just get to fish water that, that nobody else fishes, uh, which which can lead to some really good days, obviously, in your case. So uh, tell me a little bit, how, how do you usually approach it? Like, what's what do you start um, once you leave the ramp, get your kayak in the water? What are you looking for usually in, the, in those little creeks and stuff that you're fishing? <laughs> that's that's kind of tough. So the, the big thing about it is the time of year is a huge player in that. 
summertime is a lot easier. You're simply looking for colder water with a little bit of depth. Uh, wintertime, it's, if you want to fish running water, you kind of have to get out of the running water. You want to be near the running water, but out of the running water. So typically an eddy pockets are, are a good eddy line or a break right there. Some, something to slow down where the fish don't have to swim all the time. But this time of year, if you have moving water, you can have fish. For sure. That's, that's my experience down here. I don't, especially on the Delta, because there's so much of the water that's not moving. Uh, we was, we was just talking about, uh, earlier in the show, talking about that, that bathtub water, right? Feels you jump in it, feels like you, right. you drew you a warm bath and hopped in and it'll, it'll make them fish slow down big time. And, uh, I, I have found that here. Some of my best success is getting off the main rivers and going as far up the creek as you can to where it's a little bit cooler from the springs and the rain runoff and, and then it's just almost a matter, uh, for me, just finding a, a pocket, you know, if you can find a hole that you can't see down in the bottom of, there's probably a fish at the bottom of it. Is that kind of the same case for you? Just if you can find a good deep hole somewhere, it's usually worth fishing? Yeah, a lot of my better fishing on the Coosa River on the lake system mm-hmm. is finding those pockets that have those little springs that come up. And it'll be a hole, you know, no bigger than a trash can, but that colder water coming up holds fish right there on top of it. Sure. What what are you usually if if you come across a pocket like that this time of the year what are you what are you throwing at them? So if I'm throwing and the fish are not directly in a tree or hiding next to a rock, I want to float something by them. Typically, I don't want to hit them right in the head with a jig or or put a six inch weighted worm on top of them. I want to float like a fluke by them and just see how they react to it. If they're aggressive, you know, especially if that first fish is aggressive, a lot of the times you can get most of the fish to react after that. But if you come in and spook them, because they're they're typically not feeding when they're, they're in those positions. They're just in a nice, comfortable place. So you want to just get one fish to react to something, and then you can pick the rest of them off. But if that first move is spooking those fish, you've already ruined your fishing chances. For sure. Yeah, so like you're you saying, finesse yeah. fishing, slower fishing, it's the same scenario, but they're, they're in the, those fish are in those situations, you know, positions right there where you want them to be. How doing, so balancing your finesse fishing, requiring some lighter gear versus like you were saying, you've got fish that are up tight next to structure. A lot of times I've found in those small creeks, it can be hard to balance finesse tackle with the ability to horse a fish out of trouble because you don't have a lot of room to let them run, right? Is that is that something you have struggled with and found a solution to? So I, I do my best to never finesse fish. There are when I have to do it, I do it. So if we're talking about uh, blue, clear sky days, you know, sometimes you have to finesse fish. But if I can avoid finesse fishing altogether, I will. And then I'm throwing 65-pound braid on a buzz bait and snatching those fish out of there. Uh, but even throwing smaller jigs, you, you just have to be patient with those fish because once they go to bulldog down into that current and you're over a limb, if you fight them too hard, you've lost them. I have I have lost the last time I went fishing I lost a fish that ex- exactly that happened he was right there on a log and I and I watched him get off I watched him get hung and I watched him get off it was that shallow yeah you, you just have to be patient with them and you know they'll, they'll make a couple of hard runs and then you just slowly pull them and hope they come through but ideally you hit them in the head with something you know with a strong enough line stiff enough rod to pull them out of there right away but that's not always the case yeah, and you you said sixty five pound test is what you were fishing with. I want a buzz bait, yeah. Oh goodness, that is that's that stuff that we reserve down here where I'm at for catfish. That's what I got on my catfish rods. I think I got a thirty. You you dead serious about winching them out of something, ain't you? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm throwing that buzz bait up against the bank in most situations and into trees, and you know, it, as long as it can touch water, I'll throw it in there. And sure. if they hit it and it's over limbs and under limbs, I want to be able to pull them out of there. 
but you know i've got lighter tackle for for being more precise about fishing you know certain limbs and trunks and things like that it'll be like 12 15 you know 17 pound test at the biggest sure and you just toss it in there set the hook and, and just you try to pull them out right away but if you can't do it you just gotta ease up on them and, and let them wear themselves out sure is there a particular buzz bait that, that you usually default to yeah i've got two if i'm fish if i know i'm fishing for either like four pound spots or big large mouth i really like the big bite baits buzz bait they've got one that you can put a toad on it and to me that is a very good fish catching buzz bait it, it hooks up extremely well uh, the only problem I have with it is the wire is a little soft, but it's soft for a reason. And, you know, that's so fish can crush that buzz bait and get hooked. Uh, another one that I really like if I'm fishing moving water, it's a company named Hoppies, and they're out of Tennessee. They used to sell them in Academy and Bass Pro. I don't think they do anymore, but you can still order them on the website. It's like four and a half, five dollars for a buzz bait, and they're really good buzz baits. They hook up great, and that, that's my choice for moving water. Okay, and you said Hoppies? Hoppies, H-O-P-P-Y. H-O-P-P-Y, buzz baits. I've never heard of hoppies, I guess. I'll have to look those up. I've never, a buzz bait is one of those baits. Everybody, you know, you, you end up with your confidence bait. And for me, usually that's a spinner bait. And you would think, you know, they, they look similar. And you would think that if you was comfortable throwing a spinner bait, you'd throw a buzz bait too. But I've just never fished a lot of buzz baits. So tell me, for people who are like me and you don't fish a lot of buzz baits, you obviously do very well with them. What have you found to be the most successful way to fish that buzz bait once you've got a good one picked out? So I'm not a big believer in cadence for most days. If the fish are active, they're going to eat most things that hit the water. Uh, I've had times of the year where the only way to get a fish to bite it was to, to reel it very fast or, uh, you know, reel it fast, reel it slow, reel it fast. But I don't think in those situations that that's the best lure to use. So if you're, you're getting solid bites on a buzz bait, just stick to whatever you were doing, but don't feel like you have to do anything crazy with it. If you're having to do that, throw something else, and that's my—that's just my opinion. Gotcha. But I, in those situations, I'll pick up a frog or a spook to try to get those fish. It gives them more time, and you can be erratic with it, and then just have it sit there in front of them, and that'll drive them crazy. I got you. Do you use with your buzz bait? Do you fish it just how it comes in the package, or do you add a trailer to it? Typically, I'll just fish them right out of the package. Now, with the big bite buzz baits, like I said, they come with a plastic toad on it. And once you wear that one out, I, I like to use a Zoom horny toad. Mm -hmm. It's a decent replacement. I got you. I got yeah, you. I, I, I'll fish them until the wire wears out on them, just like a spinner bait. Yeah, so if you swap over, like on those situations like where you were talking about where that buzz bait's not working for you, what's what's usually the next thing in your, in your tackle box that you pull out? So if, they're, if they are trying to eat that buzz bait, but they're not getting it for whatever reason, uh, you want to pick up a spook or, like I said, a frog or... Uh, what's the river to see? The whopper plopper. Mm -hmm. That way you have those treble hooks on them and you more so snag that fish because a lot of times they're not really trying to eat it. They're just trying to kill it. Right. So they'll is, hook themselves on those treble hooks. Is is there a difference swapping from a a big single hook like on a buzz bait to tying on something like a whopper plopper or a spook with those smaller treble hooks? Do you fish those on the same rod or do you switch rods over? I ask because I know in kayak space is usually pretty limited. So I know guys try to, you know, pare down their rod selection. With a whopper plopper, I'm going to use the same rod with 65 pound braid, like a medium heavy rod, whatever length you're comfortable with. But now if I move to a spook, I'll still use a medium heavy rod, but about 20 pound fluorocarbon or fluorocarbon coated is what would be more ideal to me because those fish, they have to get that spook. A lot of times down underwater before you can really set the hook. 
you know, it's not like a whopper plopper where they hook themselves, but with that spook, a lot of times they're just swiping at it and, and striking at it, and you don't know that you always have them hooked, ideally. So they'll come up and catch that spook and pull it down, and they'll turn on it, and when they turn on it, they'll hook themselves on the side of the mouth, typically. But if you have braid, you're going to pull it away from them before that can happen. Yeah, that has that has definitely been something I've struggled with over the years is uh getting a little too quick and a little too aggressive with with the hook sets there on a lot of your top water baits. And like you said, you're just snatching it straight out their mouth, which is frustrating for I'm sure it's frustrating for the fish, but it's frustrating for me too. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think there's a perfect answer on that either. I know with frog fishing, people are really adamant, you know, you count to five or count to ten or count to whatever before you set the hook. But in some cases, that fish is just, it's never going to have a good grip on that lure. It, it doesn't matter when you set the hook. I, I'm a firm believer in setting the hook it, as soon as it goes underwater. Yeah, it, it's, and I, I think there's times where both work. And I, and I can tell you, even fishing live bait, freeline and shiners and stuff like that, sometimes it seems like you give them plenty of time to run with it. And then you go to set the hook. And I guess they just don't have it situated right. I guess you're never going to have a 100% hookup rate and a, you know, once I started fly fishing a little bit, it, it kind of changes, you know, with a, with a quicker hook set. So I know it can vary, but, uh, I'm, I'm with you. Like I'd, I'd, I'd pay money to whoever could tell me definitively if you were better to let them eat it or set the hook immediately. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer on it. I know during practice, I will not set the hook. If I'm in an area that I plan on fishing, if I get a bite, say if I'm fishing a jig, I will not set the hook on that fish, and I will reel that fish all the way up to the kayak without setting the hook because they will not let go of it. And yeah. it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and once you figure it out, if you like me, by the time you figure it out, they're going to change it the next time you go out. But uh, Yeah, yeah, that's fishing. Yeah, that is, that is fishing. Well, tell me a little bit because it's always interesting to me talking to kayak anglers. There's so many different options on your kayak setups and i know everybody from people who paddle you know the big wide stable battleships where they can stand up and fish they got the full pedal drive system and then they've got their electronics installed in it and then i know talking with guys like uh wayne harris he's he's one he's more uh he's a little bit lighter you know he likes a boat that he can get down a creek bank what uh what do you usually fish out of so this year i've been fishing out of a new canoe unlimited quite a bit and it is a yacht I can't lie about that. It's not nearly as heavy as a Hobie or the native Titans. Uh, it's not nearly that heavy. I think out of the box, it's pushing 90 pounds. Uh, with, with everything that I put in it, it's probably closer to 130 or 140, which is still a competitive weight uh, if you're strong enough to, to maneuver that. Uh, but it's got a motor on it now, so I'm very comfortable fishing out of that. Before that, I had a new canoe pursuit with the pedal drive. And it's uh, it's a longer, more narrow kayak. It's much faster. Like I said, that one was still lightweight. I could take it wherever I wanted to, especially the pedal drive on the transom. It was a completely different scenario than having a trolling motor in front where you run into a tree. And now it's a hard stop. But that's what I like about the new canoes on the transom. If you run into a rock or a log, it's going to kick up and you're going to go over it in most situations. But okay. now I, I also have, I've got one of Wayne's old canoes, actually. <laughs> in my backyard that's my lightweight throw and go it's like 45 pounds i think that's one that he owned a long time ago and i bought it off of somebody that bought it from him so that's kind of interesting but but yeah uh i kind of i like to have every option that i can possibly have but typically if i know i'm i'm going to be near a lake or fishing big water i'm going to be in that new canoe unlimited well so tell me a little bit obviously if you've got the trolling motor hooked up to the front of it then your boat management is 
pretty much the same as somebody in a bass boat, right? Like you can, you can sit there and I know they make, you know, not sure what yours is, but I've seen people that have kayaks and they've got spot lock and, and all of that stuff. And it's really easy to kind of control your position and fight a fish. But if you're sitting there in a paddle or a pedal drive kayak, how do you go about, like I've, I have fished in a kayak and I've caught fish in a kayak, but I've never really been into it enough to call myself a kayak fisherman just because I struggle so much, especially in current and fighting a fish. You just end up in some really goofy positions and I just cannot shake myself out of a reliance on a foot control trolling motor. How are you handling that boat in that current with those fish on the line? So a big thing about that is having a boat that tracks really well. If you have a boat that does not track really well, that fish is going to pull you all sorts of directions. But if it tracks well, you set the hook, you reel the line tight, and you have the paddle in your lap the whole time. And then you position the front of that boat to go where you want it to go. And then you can fight your fish without having to worry about being drugged into a tree or into the bank. But if you have a, a kayak that, that does not track well, you're going to get spun around and that fish is going to do what it wants to do. And it would be a huge pain in that situation. <laughs> but most of the time, if you can maintain your position, like I said, that you've got a rod in one hand and a paddle in the other to maneuver yourself to where you think you'll, you'll be safe. Well, that's definitely, that's, that's the kind of advice I'm looking for because I'd like to, uh, I'd like to get into it more because we have some kayak tournaments down here local. There's a pretty active group that fishes here in the Mobile Tensaw Delta where I'm at. Um, you've got a lot mm -hmm. more experience with, with this than I do. So for me and other people who are looking at maybe getting into it, what are some, what are some tournaments that you've fished in and that you've enjoyed? Is there anything coming up this year that you'd recommend people keep an eye on? Yeah, if anybody can jump on it, coming up this weekend is the River Region Kayak Anglers out of the Montgomery area. Uh, they have a tournament on the Alabama River above the RF Henry. Uh, that, I know that would be short notice for a lot of people, but that's this weekend. And then next weekend, or the weekend after next on the 29th, uh, Iron City Kayak Anglers is going to have a youth tournament in Leeds, Alabama. So if anybody has some kids and they have some kayaks and they want to get out there and have some fun, uh, that would be that would be fun for the kids. It's 11 and under. And then 12 to 16 are the age groups, if anybody would be interested in that. And then a lot of these updates, you can find them at the Yak Shack uh, through their Facebook page or the River Region Facebook page, Iron City Kayak Anglers Facebook page. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and name the rest of the groups, if you don't mind. Sure. Coleman Kayak Anglers, they have a Facebook page. Coosa River Kayak Anglers and North Alabama Kayak Anglers. And then, as you mentioned before, the guys down on the, in the Mobile Bay, uh, I think there's two groups started down there now. Is that right? There there may very well be. I know that, that kayaking, once it kind of exploded, you know, I guess about 10, 15 years back, down here, everybody, it seems like you have more kayak anglers some days than you have, you know, people in, in glitter boats. So there may be two by now. I think it was Mobile, Alabama kayak anglers and Mobtown kayak anglers. Yes. Yes, you were correct. I have, I have seen both of those groups. You're correct. Yeah, I think Mobtown is more active these days. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. I see them on Facebook a pretty good bit here local. I keep up with some of their stuff. What would you what what Another, else do you need if you, if you've got a kayak and you've got fishing gear? Is there any special gear that you need to get in on these tournaments? Yeah, you have to have a catch board for most of the groups in Alabama. They're an American company, everything made in the United States. Uh, Catchboard USA. They have a website, uh, and I know you can buy them at the Yak Shack, and I think you can buy them at oh goodness, All Star Outdoors in Centerville. I know I think that's where you can buy them local at. But Catchboard USA, they, they make a measuring board. You lay your fish on that board, you take a picture of it. 
Uh, and you, you can do that with your phone. And on your phone, you'll either have Turning X, which is an app, or Fishing Chaos. And through that app, you upload the picture of that fish. And at the end of the day, tournament directors will go through all of those fish and judge the fish. And you find out who won, just like you would a bass tournament. But no one has to bring fish to a weigh-in. It's all done through pictures. That that definitely sounds like the way of the future to me, especially like you were saying earlier. It's so hot down here. And I know the local ramp by my house, everybody, you know, most of the anglers that I know are really conscientious um, about how they land and handle fish and trying to keep them alive and, and alive well. But I know it's just really hard to prevent some some die off. And that seems to me like a really good way to, you know, to have a metric where you can have a tournament and compete and have fun and enjoy the resource and everything, but also get that fish back in the water where he needs to be a little bit quicker. That sounds like a really good way to do things. I know that's happening on some lakes where you can't remove fish from the lake. You can't have them in the live well at all. So they're doing catch photo release. I don't know if it'll ever happen in the big tournaments. It probably won't because that, that weigh-in is, is so special to, to so many people. But it would be it would be better for the fishery if we quit putting them in live wells for tournaments, if you're, if you're eating the fish or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jacob, it has been a, a pleasure talking to you. I could I could talk about fishing all day, and, and I know a lot of our listeners could. But we do try for the people on the commute. We try to keep these uh, down to 45 minutes or so. But let's, let's definitely, I've enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you being on the show. And uh, I'd definitely like to hear more from you in the future if you got time. Yeah, anytime you want to. I enjoy being on it. Yes, sir. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you, sir. You too. Well, that's another awesome report, and it has been brought to you by Bucks Island. Bucks Island is a family-owned and operated business since 1948. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They love trade-ins for boats and motors. They can rig your boat or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, 35907 zip code, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, you can text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the new show each week. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by KillerDock. KillerDock combines durability, function, and design to uniquely upgrade your entire dock experience. Visit KillerDock.com to see more. Also brought to you by Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply. Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply manufacture a variety of metal roofing systems to meet your needs. Whether you're putting a new roof on your home or sheeting a commercial building, they have you covered. Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply, your metal roofing headquarters. Also by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call 1-888-830-POND or info at sepond.com. And brought to you by LM Marine. LM Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoons to bigger bay and hybrid boats for the hardcore angler. You can visit them at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama, 
or give them a call at 251-937-1380.